Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 126th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Today, we're going to talk about something that is a huge fear for moms. Like when your daughters go out at night, we worry that they could be sexually assaulted. Or if you have sons, you can worry that they could be accused of sexually assaulting a girl. Today, we're going to talk about consent and how it is more than just telling our daughters to say a clear yes or no. We will talk about the do's and don'ts of consent and how to talk to our teens about it. To address these issues, I have invited Christy Keating to be our guest. Christy Keating is the founder and CEO of The Heartful Parent. Christy is a certified parent coach a certified positive discipline instructor, a certified instructor with the Gottman Institute. She is also a longtime leader and speaker at the Program for Early Parent Support. In addition to her work as a parent coach, Christy is a licensed attorney and former prosecutor of 20 years with an expertise in the prosecution of sexually violent predators, as well as an active member of the National Coalition to prevent child sexual abuse and exploitation. Through the Heartful Parent Sister Company, Savvy Parents Safe Kids, Christy offers child safety workshops, presentations, and consulting to both parents and professionals. So welcome, Christy. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, Colleen. Oh, you have such important information for the moms out here. So first of all, do you have kids? I do. I am, I, like your listeners, I'm a parent in the thick of it. I have two daughters. I've got, um, my older daughter turns 12 this month, actually, in August, and my younger one uh, is four. So I've got a fun fun spread that keeps <laughs> me on my toes. Yeah, um, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it is, uh, it's an adventure in our house. Let's just say that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about really some hard issues and real issues today. You know, if you are a mom, one of the things you definitely worry about for your daughters is that they would be sexually assaulted or that they would be raped. And so we're, you know, constantly telling our daughters like, you know, don't wear a short skirt, you know, dress differently, like that's going to protect them. So I really am looking forward to kind of diving into this. Yeah, it is. Um, 
you know, it's one of those things that's hard for us to think about. And when something's hard for us to think about, because none of us want to imagine our daughters, you know, something happening to our daughters, nor do we ever want to think about our sons doing something, Mm. you know, to someone else. And, um, and so when something's hard to think about, it often becomes hard to talk about. And of course, in that perfect irony, the only way through this and the only way to sort of start to change the culture and protect our kids is through conversation. So I'm really glad that we're talking about this today with your audience. Yes, yes. So what have you learned from being a licensed attorney and former prosecutor of 20 years? That's a long time. (laughs) Specifically prosecuting sexually violent predators. So like what advice do you have for moms because of your experience with this? Yeah, well, you know, my advice really, as you said, I, I worked with pretty terrible cases for a long time. And, you know, I spent a good number of years prosecuting what I would call, I hate this term, but sort of your average sex offenses. And then I spent a number of years prosecuting the most dangerous of our offenders. And, you know, I learned a great deal from both of those, but I think that the big overarching picture that I really want parents to to grasp or to understand, which is something I saw sort of play out again and again, is that our kids do not know these things. You know, they don't understand what consent means. They don't always make good decisions, even when we think we've raised them to do that. They don't always treat others the way that we expect them to. You know, because we sort of, I think oftentimes as parents, we just are like, oh, I've got a good a good kid. And I'm putting that in, you know, air quotes, of course. And so not my kid, my kid would never harm anyone else, or my kid would never be in a position where he or she could be harmed. And the reality is, yes, our kids, your kids, my kids, the, the line between safe and criminal behavior is much finer than people think. And so we have to be having regular in-depth conversations with our tweens and teens about this, even when they don't want to, or act like they don't want to. Um, Because oftentimes they actually do want to hear from us. (laughs) They just pretend that they don't, right? Right, yes. So, you know, that's that's the thing that just came ringing through case after case after case is we got to spell it out for our kids. We've got to give them clear a clear understanding of what consent means on both sides of the, you know, of the equation, um, boys and girls, men and women all need to understand this as a way of protecting themselves, protecting their friends, making clear what our expectations of them are. Yes. Well, we're going to definitely dive into consent, but before that, I want to ask you this question. Uh, and I guess we can do both sides of this. What can moms do if they find out that their daughters have been sexually assaulted and like, what should they, how should they respond to that? And I guess the same if, if you found out that your son sexually assaulted someone else. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to be, to be fair, although we know that the statistics show that the large majority of offenders are male and, you know, conversely, most victims are female, 
this really does cross all realms, right? Boys can be sexually assaulted. Girls can sexually assault. And this occurs in a heterosexual contact context. Um, it occurs between gay and lesbian um, and LGBTQ folks. So this spans everything. So this should concern every parent out there. You know, whether you're a parent by birth, by blood, or by love, this affects you. If you find out that you have a child that has has been the victim of a sexual assault, first of all, I want to say that tells me you've got a close relationship with your kiddo. Mm. Uh, and so kudos to you, mom or dad, right? Because this is one of the most underreported crimes out there. You know, we too often, kids, girls, think that they did something wrong or that it was their fault. And so they don't report it. So it is wise for parents to keep an eye out for significant behavior changes in their kids and probe into those because there may be something going on that that hasn't been discussed. But if that is revealed, the first and most important step, and this is true whether you've got a teenager or a toddler, if you find out something has happened to your child, the first step is to believe them. Believe what they are telling you. And especially with our tweens and teens, you know, when we have younger kids, we have to make a lot of decisions for them. As our children grow, if we are making too many decisions for them, we are disempowering them. And when someone has been the victim of a sexual assault, if we insist that they call the police, insist that they report it, you know, and make all these sort of sweeping, this is what we need to do and we're going to jump into action and I'm going to take care of you, that can actually feel really disempowering for a child who's already been overpowered. While we believe them, we also need to give them space and ask lots of op open-ended questions to help them figure out what they need and how we can support them in that. You know, of course, as a prosecutor, former, former prosecutor, my gut instinct is yes, call the police. But I also know, first of all, not every community is treated equally by the police. I also know that um, even under the best of circumstances, the legal process is grueling for victims. So they need to be aware of what they're getting, you know, what, what they're signing up for. There's no shame in, in saying, I, that's not what I can do, right? So you often hear say people say, well, you could stop it from happening to someone else, which is a noble cause. But again, that puts a lot of pressure on that person who's been sexually assaulted. So belief and space to make their own decisions and to, to figure out what is the right decision for them. Um, and then we have to sort of sit back and provide that open, loving support. It is the rare parent that can manage the emotions that stem from that, from an assault by themselves. Yes. Even if you're a therapist, right? Or even if yes. this is your line of work, they need outside support. And so that would be a place where maybe pushing a little bit to get some outside support would be, would be warranted. Oh, that is such great advice. Yes. So like in my practice, I have talked to many girls and many moms around this. And there's a lot to sort out because this just breaks your heart if you're a mom. 
And the girls are really confused about it. And exactly like what you said is they just, they go into shame. They feel like they, like you said, they caused it. And to help empower these girls, they do need the space to see it from a different perspective because they're in trauma. Yeah. They're, they're traumatized and moms can be traumatized also. And not to say that dads can't be, but. Right. Yeah. And actually that's a really, I think it's important to mention that parents might need their own therapy around this so that they can deal with their trauma around it separately. Yes. And what we know is that because of the incredibly high incidence of sexual assault in our culture, you know, what, what some people have coined rape culture, there are a lot of moms out there for whom this is really triggering and they have their own traumatic history with this. They need to deal, they need to deal with their own stuff separate and apart from their daughter, um, yes. you know, or yeah. their, their child. And that's really critically important. And so getting therapy on board for everyone is a wise, wise idea. And there are, at least in our area of the country, and I'm in the Seattle area, and I know this is true in other parts as well, there are some really wonderful sexual assault resource centers that can point survivors and parents towards the that therapeutic help. Yeah. I have worked with moms who they're, because of their own kind of traumatic reaction to it, they just got angry with their girls. Yeah. And that is definitely not helpful. It's understandable, but you're, you're blaming the wrong person. So to step back and take care of your own heart and your own feelings is really, really important. Yeah. So I want to go back to what you said about grueling. That's words stuck in my brain. Mm -hmm. So what is grueling so that these parents can understand if they decide to go through and prosecute and take legal action? Yeah. So, you know, it's going to vary slightly, obviously from, um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but generally speaking, it will start with a report to law enforcement. So your local police department, sheriff's office, whatever is, is the main um, law enforcement bureau in your in your jurisdiction. And an investigation would then ensue, which involves an interview by most likely a detective, depending on the age of the survivor. Um, in some jurisdictions, especially for younger kids, which I know we're not talking about right now, but they've got interview specialists that will do those interviews. But you're talking about some sort of investigative interview. We live in a culture where the legal standard, which we can talk about shortly, is different from what what we should be teaching our kids is the standard for consent. But the legal standard very much puts sort of the burden on the victim, right? On the person who was sexually assaulted to have said no, to have fought the person off, to have done something to unequivocally communicate that, that this was not activity that they were consenting to. And because of that, their lives get dug into. And there are some amazing law enforcement officers out there that are well-trained in this and know how to do an investigation in a way that doesn't re-traumatize or unnecessarily re-traumatize the victim. And then there are some that frankly aren't very good at it and also have some of those old or, you know, I would say antiquated beliefs about who's responsible for a sexual assault. And so 
it's a, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, right? When you make that report, if we assume that the report's made, that the investigation is done and that the case is then forwarded to the prosecuting authority or the district attorney, or again, whatever you have in your jurisdiction, then that starts a whole new process because now we're talking about probably an interview or more by the prosecutor themselves to, you know, get to know the person, start to assess the strengths and weaknesses of their case. It likely means an interview by the defense attorney mm. who's representing the um, the accused. And then if it goes that far, uh, well, and it can also mean, you know, interviews of everyone in that person's circle, their parents, their friends, anyone that saw them that night, you know, God forbid they were drinking. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek because alcohol is not the cause of sexual assault, right? But, you know, that just opens up this can of worms. And so everybody gets gets interviewed. And then if it does proceed to trial, then you're put in a situation where, again, the survivor not only has to describe this all again, but has to do it while they're looking at their assailant mm. with 12 strangers sitting in the jury box and a judge. And a courtroom under the best of circumstances is a pretty intimidating um, place for most people, right? Those of us who've you know spent 20 years in and out, okay, it's not that big a deal for me as an attorney. But I've had to testify, and that is a whole new experience. And so, you know, there's it's just a disruption in their lives. It can take years sometimes mm. for these cases to make it to trial, especially right now after COVID, when a lot of you know trials were put on put on hold for a long time. So there's a, a criminal um, backlog in many, many offices across the country. So it's, it is a tough process. And some of the bravest, strongest, most amazing people I've seen, you know, were those who, who stood up and, and went through that. And those who step back and say, I don't have it in me are also incredibly brave because they're recognizing what they are capable of. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. I totally agree. So let's talk about consent. Yeah. And what role does talking about drugs and alcohol play in that overall consent conversation? So it plays a big role, but <laughs> there's a qualifier there. I think that the, the conversation about consent and the definition of consent and sort of setting our expectations for our kids needs to come first, right? Our kids need to know what consent is before we talk about some of the nuances or some of the things that make consent more challenging. It plays a big role. Drugs and alcohol are a prominent feature of many of these cases, but we, I think we need to start with what the definition is and then really help our, our kids understand the impact that drugs and alcohol has on their ability to consent, on their ability to discern whether or not someone else has consented, right? Um, All right, so let's start on yeah. consent. Okay, the easiest way to describe this, and I said a couple of minutes ago, in the criminal justice system, the burden is on the, on the victim, on the survivor. And so what we often hear and what parents often teach their kids in a very well-meaning way is no means no, right? No means no. But what, like I said, what we've done is put the onus or the burden of that on the, on the person that is being touched as opposed to the toucher. 
some parents have shifted this and said, well, okay, if no, do, if no means no doesn't work, let's shift it a little further and say, well, yes means yes. But again, now we're putting the responsibility on the person being touched. So I took that and, and created a mnemonic, if you will, or a, a, an acronym for what consent really means. And I call it the omegas of consent. Omega is the final letter in the Greek alphabet. So I think of this as the final word on consent. And I'll just go through it really briefly for you. But the O means that consent needs to be ongoing. So you might get consent from a partner for kissing, but consent for any, you know, for touching or um, anything beyond that needs to be obtained as well. So consent is needs to be ongoing throughout the interaction and it can be withdrawn at any time. And that withdrawal needs to be respected. So that's, that's the first part of that. The M stands for mutually desired. So, you know, it's not, it, we really need our kids to understand just because you want to do something with this other person, whether they're a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or someone you met at a party that night, both parties need to, to not only desire the contact, but the nature of the contact. The E in Omegas is for enthusiastic informed partners. So, you know, I think what we need to help our kids understand is that, and this requires some open communication around sex and sexuality, but the idea that when you have an enthusiastic partner, it can be an amazing experience. Our I think our kids deserve that, right? I think everyone deserves that. And so switching that and saying, you, it's not good when you take what's not yours, right? That you need to be um, seeking out somebody that really wants to do that with you. And so if they are not enthusiastic participants, then you don't have consent. Let's see, the, the G is that it's given freely. So, you know, it's not coerced. It's not done under pressure. There's not statements being made like, you know, and our, and our kids need to hear it's not okay to say, well, if you really loved me, you would dot, 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 right? <laughs> or everyone is doing it, which is, you know, an impossibility. And you know, our boys need to understand that. Our girls need to understand that that's not a sign of a healthy relationship when someone you know, pressures. So consent needs to be freely given. The parties involved need to be of an acceptable age. So that's the A. And by that, I mean legal age to consent. And that's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then the final piece, the S is sober body and sound mind. So this gets into that piece that you were asking about, which is the impact that drugs and alcohol, or sometimes even mental health challenges can have on a person's ability to consent, to understand consent, you know, or to really discern whether or not the other person is consenting. So, um, so just really quick, again, it's ongoing, mutually desired, enthusiastic informed partners given freely at an acceptable age by people who are of sober body and sound mind. And that, when we look at consent that way, it changes the whole dialogue. Yes, I love this. And this is such a great way to talk to your teens about. Like, this is very easy to talk. It gives a structure to talk to your teens yeah. about this. Yes. Yeah. And when it's something you're uncomfortable talking with teens about, having a structure, having a way to work through it makes it so much easier. And you can also say to your teen, you know, today we're going to talk about the G. 
That's all we're going to talk about. I need two minutes of your time, you know, so that it doesn't turn into this big lecture, which is when our teens shut down. You know, they may be nodding and smiling, but they are not taking it in. (laughs) So, you know, this can be a conversation had over days, weeks, months. Today, we're going to remind you what the O is or the, you know, the S or, and we're just going to touch on those or um, explore them in relation to something that we see in the media or on a TV show or so it does, it gives that nice structure um, to dive into some of these challenging conversations. Now, it's so good because a lot of girls will feel like kind of bullied into it or feel guilt or they're not enthusiastic at all. Yeah. And they're kind of scared. And so that, and it's not given freely. It's kind of apprehensive. Yeah. And I also love that you talk about ongoing because it's just ongoing because sexuality is very dynamic and changes. And so, yes, this is a great way to talk to your teens about this. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives our, you know, if we're thinking about our daughters, it gives them a way of understanding, you know, really what they have a right to. And I always say to parents, you know, we love to talk to our girls about and, you know, there's this irony in our culture. We tell them, well, if you wear a, a shirt that's cut too low or a skirt that's too high, you know, or you drink too much, you're just asking for it, right? And we we have dress codes where we will send girls home because they're not dressed appropriately. You know, I don't know if you saw in the news recently, but then the Norwegian beach handball team was fined for, for wearing clothing that wasn't revealing enough. So there's this weird, yeah, they were they were fined because they're they wore um shorts instead of bikini bottoms. And so our girls are getting really mixed messages, right? Yes. About what is okay and what isn't okay. And so here's the message I want our girls to hear. You should be able, any one of us should be able to walk down the street completely naked and completely drunk and be safe. I and agree. Have, Nobody do anything to us. And in fact, have people there looking out for our well-being. Yes. That is, that's what we should have the right to do. Yes. Um, and so it is never somebody's fault if they drank too much or they wore a skirt that was too short or, you know, the, the fault is in the person that took advantage of that. Absolutely. Um, I remember as a therapist, because I'm a family therapist and have been practicing for decades, yeah. But I, and I was a new family therapist and I sat there and this girl had been raped and she was a mess. And her dad, the way he told me is he said, she got herself raped. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm a pretty easygoing person, but I rose up and set him straight. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that may have been decades ago and, but that messaging is still out there, right? Yes. Somehow our kids, our daughters, our, you know, our children have done something wrong if they are victimized and what a damaging message. And that just perpetuates this idea of not reporting it, right? Well, if I'm going to get blamed for it and be made to feel even worse than I already do, you know, and what we know is that victims of sexual assault have way higher rates of you know, mental health challenges, depression, anxiety, suicide, all of those things. And so if we're adding insult to injury by saying they got themselves raped, whew, 
Wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And girls have so much shame around this. So let me tell you this story and this will kind of bring us into the alcohol part. Yeah. So um, I had just this really, really sweet client who um, was a virgin and was in her first year in college. And it was important for her to, she didn't want to have sex. She came home that summer and went and saw an old friend and she drank too much and basically blacked out mm-hmm. and he had sex with her. Yep. And she felt like so terrible about herself and had so much shame about it. And her mom got angry with her. Yeah. Like you should have come home. You should have done this. You should have done this. So I said, you know, honey, that was rape. That's incapacitated rape. She had no idea. And I think there's so many girls that don't know that. Yes. Yeah. And I I think there's a lot of boys that don't know that as well. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, And that is why I, that story that you just told is, you know, in a variety of iterations that, I mean, I've seen that play out again and again. I've taken cases like that to trial. They are difficult cases. They are so painful because the the victims do blame themselves so heavily. And so, you know, not only do they need to understand that that it does qualify as rape, it is felony criminal behavior, hands down. They also need to we need to have conversations with our kids about the impact that drugs and alcohol can have. So I, I'm a big believer that we need to have consent conversations with our kids and we need to have safety conversations with our kids and they should be separate because while I want my daughter to know that in the ideal world, she should be able to walk down the street naked and drunk and be safe. She also needs to know that there are um, safety considerations and things she can do to keep to keep herself safer because the reality is we're not safe walking down the street naked and drunk, right? In too many circumstances. Helping our kids understand that drinking excessively, you know, or even drinking a little bit, we, we were talking about excess and somebody blacked out, but even a beer or two, Um, you know, especially, especially in young bodies that are developing and are not used to the impacts of alcohol um, can have really dramatic impact on their ability to consent freely and knowingly and make that sort of intelligent, thoughtful decision that, you know, ideally would be behind sexual encounters. It can, you know, when taken to excess, as you, you know, in the story that you just described, we can end up incapacitated and in unable to do anything to protect ourselves. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side of it, when we are drinking, it makes it harder to figure out what someone else wants, right? Because our, you know, our view of things kind of gets skewed a little bit. So, we need to have really open and honest conversations with them about alcohol and the impacts of alcohol, you know, for sexual assault reasons, but also just health 
reasons. Um, and then we need to be teaching our kids to look out for each other. So they're not just looking out for themselves, but you know, you're looking out for your girlfriends and your male friends to make sure that nobody's making decisions that they could regret or that could be criminal, you know? Um, so if you've got a friend that is passed out on the couch, don't leave her there, right? Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. leave her there. If you are, you know, our boys need to hear, if you've got a friend that is drunk and coming onto a woman and she's not participating, like tell them to back off. Wait, so we need to, we need to help them really understand that because when you're an inexperienced drinker, even when you are an experienced drinker, right? We don't always um, know the impact that, that that's going to have on us. And then of course, with drugs, that's a whole nother, you know, level of risk because we don't always know what we're getting. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that is awesome. And is that the antidote for sexual assault, especially with teens is, is having more like more of a community support it is certainly um, a part of the solution. It is certainly a big part of the solution. I think, you know, obviously, I like many complicated issues. It's a multifaceted one, right? So, uh, you know, I, I work with parents with young kids um, and teens, and I encourage parents with young children to start conversations about consent, not sexual consent, but body consent as early as possible and to start to raise children with an understanding of empathy. And I mean, empathy is a huge piece of this, right? Yeah. When we have empathetic children, that is a big antidote to sexual assault, to bullying, to, to all of it, you know, and to understanding those body boundaries. So it's, there's empathy, there's really helping them understand what consent means and what our expectations are of them, you know, and, and in that way, I'm referring primarily to boys that we expect them to, you know, follow the omegas of consent. Um, looking out for one another and building community is a big piece, um, you know. And then, I mean, we could talk for hours about the bigger social <laughs> implications, right? Of how do we start to shift this? But we can only change our little corner right now, right? So, with our own kids, community, empathy, consent. Great, great. Yeah. So, what constitutes illegal behavior? So that is going to vary slightly from, um, from state to state. Um, and what it's called is going to vary slightly from state to state. Um, and so a great, um, there are some really great resources uh, on the internet um, where, you know, you can look up the, the law in your own state. RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org, um, also has a summary of all of the states. But to put it, you know, in sort of the simplest terms, um, it is illegal to put your hands on another person's body with, especially in a sexual way, without their consent. We, we all understand regular assault, right? You can't walk down the street and punch somebody. That's not okay. You know, anytime there is that, that touching becomes of a sexual nature, um, that is typically illegal, illegal behavior. So it, that it's not just penetration. It can be over the clothes. It can be under the clothes, but you know, when you're touching the 
what we would all think of as our private parts or the areas that um, a bathing suit covers um, without the other person's consent that will likely constitute illegal behavior in whatever jurisdiction you're in. Okay. Any tips on how to engage resistant teens in these important conversations? Yes. Yes. You know, for those parents who start these conversations early, it gets, it's easier um, because our teens are used to us talking with them about difficult things. You know, I started these conversations early with my older daughter. She still is at the point when, you know, when we're talking about something related to puberty or sexuality or whatever, where sometimes she's like, oh, mom, <laughs> like, here we go again. <laughs> and that's normal, right? That's normal teen behavior. Um, but, uh, you know, Harvard did a really interesting um, study. It's called the Making Caring Common study. And the overwhelming majority of young people that were interviewed for that study revealed that they wanted to hear more from their parents about healthy relationships, about sexuality, about consent, about violence against women. You know, they want that information. And so I think we have to start by keeping that in the back of our minds that they might act like they don't, but at their core, this is information they're thirsty for. And then, so the way we engage them is we, it's going to depend from kid to kid. Um, I'm a big fan of the two minute conversation, right? I need two minutes or five minutes of your time. Long gone are the days where we're talking for an hour. We're like, okay, we're going to have the talk, right? We should eliminate the talk. It should be 200, 400, <laughs> you know, a thousand two minute conversations. I so agree. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's so much easier for them when they're like, okay, I can last for two minutes. Well, my parent, you know, tells me whatever it is they think I need to know. We can do things like, and especially for boys, but um, talk to them when we're in the car, right? When we're sitting side by side or, you know, my daughter still has to sit in the back seat because she's, she's so little. And so, you know, that when you're not looking eye to eye, when you're doing the dishes, when you're, you know, doing yard work together, when you're doing something active and it's not a like sit down face-to-face -face, intimidating conversation. Yes. Um, that can be really, really effective. Yes. Um, and then the other thing, and parents don't utilize this enough we can use technology to our advantage, right? So we can text them a public service announcement, you know, public service announcement, the O in Omegas means, you know, ongoing consent. Or do you always ask for ongoing consent, right? Or do you know, <laughs> so we can, um, we can use some of that tech to our advantage. We can record short little videos and say, I need you to watch this. And then we're going to talk about it for a few minutes, right? I mean, you can get creative with it. Here's another thing that works really well is if there's something hard to talk to your teen about, you can go to them and you can say, look, I need to have a conversation with you about the impact of drugs and alcohol on your ability to consent to sex. We can talk about it right now, or you can pick any time within the next 24 hours that works for you. And then, you know, if you don't come to me, I will follow up with you in 24 hours. And what that does is it gives our teens space to process that, you know, the conversation is coming, to brace themselves for it, and to choose a time where they feel like they can hear it. Um, now, we have to make sure we follow up, right? Because if they don't come to us and we have to go back and say, all right, 24 hours has passed, you didn't let me know, so we're going to talk about it right now. 
but that can sometimes with really resistant kids, they just need a moment to brace themselves. Like, okay, we're about to talk about sex. I'm going to talk about sex with my mom. This is hard. I need a few minutes to get ready for that. Oh no, that's really, really good because a lot of times if you bring it up, you're going to just get the reaction. So just giving them a little bit of control and giving them that 24 hours, they can kind of chill themselves out. So they're ready to actually listen to you. Exactly. And you know, that can work well for conversations about homework or grades or any number of things that these communication techniques work well for with our teens and teens. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I, I coach my moms a lot of the same stuff too. And one of the things that I love your two minute conversation, one, one of the things you're doing with that is you're also building trust with them Yeah, because they like, okay, I can handle it. Mom just is like two minutes. So this is okay. Yes. Yeah. Now it's really, you know, in that trust realm, it's really important to not say, I'm going to talk to you for two minutes and then go on for 30. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I think, I think as, you know, both of us are mothers, uh, one of the things that I, I I coach my moms with is is we are so tempted to give the big honking mother lecture, yeah, and just everything we've ever thought and everything we've ever read, we just want to just blast our kids with it, yeah. And it's so not helpful. I will just tell you, it is not helpful. <laughs> and I get the instinct, right? As a mom yeah. myself, I always say to my clients, "I'm in the thick of it with you," but we we are so desperate to protect them and to save them from their own mistakes. When the reality is, A, they got to make some mistakes. That's how they learn. They're going to make them just in the ways that we did and our parents did and, you know, and their children will. But also they're not listening when we do that. No, not at all. Yeah. They, uh, there's um, an author and I'm suddenly, maybe Lisa Demore, but she talks about, they put this sort of veneer of compliance on their faces. They'll nod, they'll <laughs> smile. Yeah. 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 And, the, and meanwhile, they're thinking about lacrosse practice or their calculus homework or what that boy said to them on the bus or whatever it is. So yeah, we've got to, we got to keep it short and sweet. Yes, absolutely. So do you have any final advice for our moms? Yes, I do. I think my final advice would be to remember that at the core of all of these conversations, connection is key. Mm, Yes. And to approach them from a place of connection. Yes. And to lead with love in these conversations. Um, And when we do that, we leave space for some really amazing conversations with our kids that will sometimes catch us by surprise. They'll engage at a time when we don't think they will. So keeping connection at the base of all of this, whether we're talking to them about consent or hearing from them that they've been assaulted, connection is the most important piece. Yes. Yeah. And I have a thought for you moms listening is if your daughter has, you know, had a, some sort of sexual assault or, you know, had sex when she didn't want it, you are not a failure as a mom. Yeah. You did not fail. This is a cultural problem and our girls are not safe. I think if we can, if we can just take our daughters in, like you said, with love and compassion. And, and if you know, mom, you haven't failed. Cause I think that's the, 
one of the go-to places for moms is I failed. And then you go into anger because you didn't do what I said. You know, like you, you, we lash out. But if you see this as you are not a failure mom, and what we're talking about is you showing up with these conversations, you will be a rock star mom. This is a, this is the rock star mom. Yeah. We, like you said, we can't a hundred percent protect our daughters, but we can show up and have the hard conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Man, if I had a way that I could teach parents to 100% protect their kids, <laughs> I'd be a, a wealthy, wealthy woman. But I thank you for saying that, Colleen, because shame is not just the place where our, our kids go, but it's where we go to. And shame and anger often mask each other, right? Yes. So yeah, this is this is not a failure. You know, and if we're having these conversations, as you said, we are showing up for our kids in the way that, that they need us to right now. Yes. And yes. I know a lot of moms are raising boys and girls. And so showing up for, for both of them yes, um, in a way that, you know, we can start to shift things. I think is there is no, nothing as powerful as a movement of moms, I think sometimes. So yes. Yeah. 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 We can change the culture. We can, we can. All right. So I could talk to you for like seven more hours, but we need to wrap it up. <laughs> sure. It's so much fun to talk to you. Oh, okay. So to talk how, to you too. Uh, how can, if moms want to reach out to you, I know you have a couple of websites. Can you tell the moms about this? And of course I'll put that in the show notes. Yes. So the best way to reach me, um, and I actually have a five page download that oh, talks. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Tell them about that. Yeah. So I've got a, a five page um, PDF that moms can download that gives them more information. It's got the omegas of consent in there. And it talks about, you know, some of the specific conversations like drugs and alcohol um, that we need to be having with our kids around this. So they can get all of that totally free on my website. Um, if they go to theheartfulparent.com slash consent, um, and it will be there for download. And then that's that same website, theheartfulparent.com. I'm, I'm actually moving all my websites into one place. So it'll be easy for people. Uh, that's the best place that they can, can reach out to me. And I will just say, you know, I am always uh, willing to be a support to help people find resources, to provide information about this. It is part of the, I, I certainly, I coach parents, but there's also a community service aspect to some of what I do. And so if there are, parents out there struggling with how to support their kids around this, they should absolutely reach out to me. Okay. Wonderful. And you're on Instagram also. I am Facebook and Instagram. I can be found on both. Yep. And uh, under the heartful parent. Again, things are in a little bit of transition, but the heartful parent is the best place to find me right now. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christy. Uh, thank you, Colleen. I really appreciate your willingness to dive into this and get this important information out to, to parents. You bet. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, 
Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.